0: Thank you. Back in Hebrews. There's um, one point I want you to take home today, and it's this one point. One of the most important things you can do uh, in your life is to know what it is to be a forgiven person. I'll say it again. One of the most important things you can do, one of the most important goals you can pursue for your life is to know what it is to be a forgiven person. To achieve forgiveness, you need uh, to have a bit of a sober awareness of your true self because you have to pursue it. You have to realise you need to be forgiven. You need to become vulnerable, humble. You need to reveal to yourself who you really are to God and to other people and say, this is who I am. And you need to hear um, a person, a Christian person, say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. It's a very powerful thing that we often don't pursue anymore as Christians. We forget the power of confession these days. And when you enter into that emotionally raw space of, um, of vulnerability and being honest with yourself, then at that point you start to pursue depth as a person. You, character builds vulnerability and raw honesty can be very painful. So we avoid it, but often we don't have a choice about it. Sometimes we're going through life and we're sailing through life and then, like a jolt out of nowhere, some kind of suffering occurs. And sometimes, sometimes, this suffering can be a good thing for our souls. The big struggles of life actually serve sometimes, often, to drag us deeper into ourselves. The German-American theologian, uh, Luther, a Lutheran theologian called Paul Tillich, wrote that people who endure suffering are taken beneath themselves, beneath the routine busyness of life, and they find out they are not who they believe they were. They might experience a good kind of pain involved in completing your university exams or the tragic kind of pain like losing a loved one. Either way, Tillich says that this pain smashes through the basement of your life and you discover there's more, more down low. There's more in the bottom uh, floor of their soul. There's a cavity lower that they can get into. And it smashes through that floor again and then there's another floor. And the more they enter into this vulnerable space, they descend into unknown ground and they start to examine the basement of their own soul. And it actually presents a pleasurable sensation, this this experience, that you're getting closer to the truth of who you really are and what life's all about. You're getting beneath the superficial and approaching the fundamental. It's not that they're getting closer to some kind of abstract, Buddhist kind of... Uh, notion of in, enlightenment that's not what we're talking about but they're learning to understand themselves and other people in God and they're culting, cultivating themselves in, in love love and humility and patience that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 3 to 6 3 to 5 not only so but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance character and character hope And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, has been given to us. Now, this morning's passage from Hebrews 10 1 to 18 looks at the way Christ has provided perfect forgiveness for all those who believe in Him. And the problem I find with talking about forgiveness is that Christ, sorry, the forgiveness that Christ offers us is that we don't really believe in sin anymore. We believed we are sinned against. We believe in systematic sins of the economy or, or governments, sinning against um, oppressed peoples, um, sins against the environment we believe in, political sins against the marginalised, but we, we rarely talk about our own personal sin in today's culture. Perhaps some of us do, but many of us don't. And the Bible says if you can't reflect on your own sin then you don't really know yourself. But God has given us a way to have honest self-awareness. So let's see what this passage says. So we've got two main points. The first point here is that God actually wants us to have self-awareness of our sin. Let's look at verses 1 to 4. Now, that's the main point of this bit. But the theological point here is is slightly different. It's that sacrificing animals can't take away sins, verse 1 to 4. Look at verse 1. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And now, we've explored this thing many times in the previous nine chapters of uh, Hebrews, but let's go into it again. The law given to Moses, which required animal sacrifice to achieve atonement for sin of forgiveness of sin, was only ever meant to be pointing to the greater sacrifice, which was made on the cross by Jesus. Christ and his new order, says Hebrews 10, is the perfect reality to which these animal sacrifices, they pointed to that. And proof that these animal sacrifices didn't really work to take away sin is there in um, verse 2 says, otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have been left feeling guilty for their sins. So that's pretty clear. You would not have had to make one more sacrifice for the people if that animal sacrifice worked to cleanse the people for their sins. But year after year, on the Day of Atonement, they went back and the priest made the big sacrifice for the sins of the people and for his own sins. And if the animal sacrifices worked, then their consciences would be cleared permanently and they would enjoy permanent um, communion with God, but that their sins remained present. So you you might be asking, thinking to yourself, well, what's the point? Why did God even tell them to do it in the first place? Because this was in the law, it says it in verse 3. Why? Why did they do it? Because those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. The tactile and gory nature of the blood and the the dead animal meant that the people would never forget who they really were. Now I, I guess it was possible and they did end up making it another religious activity and maybe some of them could just sort of forget about it but it was a pretty-in-your-face kind of reminder of who, who you are as a sinful person. And when they remembered their sins in the sight of God, God took appropriate action. Um, either pardon or punishment. If, and if it was a pardon, it was only a pardon that would last for a while and then they would have to perform a sacrifice again. It was because of the giving of the law and the requirements under the law of Moses that the Hebrew people started to realise who they were in the sight of God, that they were falling short of his glory. Human beings are what Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, described as crooked timber. They were moral people. In his time, he was a part of a group of people he could describe as moral realists who um, They put a big emphasis on sin and human behaviour and and the flawed nature of humanity. Um, uh, Moses, he was a moral realist. He, He knew how far human beings fell short. King David knew how far he fell short and the people fell short. They stood real before God. They were honest with themselves. And since the Christian era, Jesus and the apostles taught a similar message, that people need to repent of their sins. But their message was different. They said, yes, you are sinners, but Jesus has come, so repent and believe. The first truly great Christian thinker after biblical times, arguably, is Augustine. And in his autobiography, it is centred on his own self-examination and the realisation one day he's going along in life and um, experience, experiences a realisation of his own sinfulness and, and, and he converts to Christianity. And uh, as a result, he rejects worldly success and he believes in the necessity of grace for all people, of surrendering oneself to God's unmerited love. The English writer Mary Ann Evans, who wrote under the uh, name George Eliot, you might know in Middle, she wrote Middlemarch, wrote in Middlemarch, we are all of us born in moral stupidity, taking the world as an udder to feed our supreme selves. People like Moses, the Apostle Paul, Augustine, or George Eliot emphasize the limitations in our individual natures. And some of these limitations are how we understand ourselves. We cannot really grasp the complexity of the world or the full truth about ourselves. As God said to Job in chapter 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Job has no idea. Some of the limitations of humanity are moral. Augustine really understood that there was a bug in our soul that led us towards selfishness and pride and tempted us to make idols. Some of our limitations are psychological. We're divided people. And many of our worst most urgent motions, the motions of our minds are unconscious. And we can't even tell what's going on in our head. It's such a mess. Some of our limitations are social. We're not self-completing creatures. So to thrive, what we need to do is to commit ourselves and make ourselves dependent on other people or on our institutions. So it's, it's important to know these limitations of ourselves and to have a sober view of who we are before God. And the Israelites had to be taught that and that's why the law was given. And I actually believe we need to be re-taught that humility Because these days we have an epidemic of self worship. See, if you're born in the last 60 years, uh, which is most people in this room, most people, (laughs) you're born into what um, the great philosopher Charles Taylor calls the culture of authenticity. This mindset is based on the idea that each of us has a golden figure in the core of ourselves. And there is an innately good true self in this kind of understanding which can be trusted, consulted and gotten in touch with. Your personal feelings in this culture are the best guide for what is right and wrong. In this kind of ethos, the self is to be trusted, not doubted. Your desires are like inner oracles for what is right and true. You know you are doing the right thing when you feel good inside. The valid rules of life are those you make or accept for yourself and that feel right to you. And Charles Taylor says our moral salvation in this kind of thinking uh, comes from recovering authentic moral contact with ourselves. It is important to stay true to that pure inner voice and not follow the conformities of a corrupting world in this thinking. As Taylor puts it, there is a certain way of being that is my way. I am called to live my life in this way and not in imitation of anyone else's. If I'm not, I miss the point of my life. I miss what being human is for me. Before World War II, uh, it was a slightly different way of thinking in the West. Western people lived in a culture of self-combat, where the goal of life was to overcome the inner struggles. But since World War II, this has shifted, been replaced by the pursuit of self-expression. Moral authority is no longer found in some external objective good. It is found in each person's unique original self greater emphasis is put on personal feelings as a guide to what is right and wrong. I know I'm doing right because I feel harmonious. Something is going wrong, on the other hand, when I feel my autonomy is being threatened, when I feel I'm not being true to myself. So the problem is, in this ethos, sin is not found in your individual self. It is found in the external struggles of society, in racism, inequality and oppression. To improve yourself, you have to be taught to love yourself in this in this philosophy, to be true to yourself, not to doubt yourself and struggle against yourself. Um, there's, you know, the high school musical movie, there's a line in it where the singer sings, the answers are all inside of me, all I've got to do is believe. You know, that sums it up. If you are swept up in a culture of self-improvement, then you are unlikely to want to examine yourself and see the sin. And you are unlikely to want to submit to God. Now, God does not want us to um, teach ourselves about our sinfulness by sacrificing animals anymore. That's over, because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We do not need to perform any more sacrifices. However, he has given us ways to understand ourselves. And I think this is what we need to pursue. And the best way we can do that, I think is through what um, I call, and actually I'm stealing it off another theologian, the scripture mirror, right? Sometimes actors rehearse in front of the mirror because they want to see what they look like and they want to improve the way they act. Uh, They can see what they actually really look like when they perform, whether they're believable or authentic. In a similar way, Christians should look at themselves in the scripture mirror... Uh, and to see who they really are. But this is no ordinary mirror because this mirror actually tells the truth about ourselves. And it can be very painful. You might remember uh, the magic mirror that was owned by the evil queen in the story of Snow White. Every morning the evil queen asked the magic mirror the question, magic mirror in my hand, who is the fairest in the land? And the mirror always replies, my queen, you are the fairest in the land. The Queen is always pleased with that uh, message because the magic mirror doesn't lie. But when Snow White reaches the age of seven, she becomes as beautiful as any woman in the whole land, more beautiful than the Queen. And when the Queen asks her, her mirror, it responds, My Queen, you are the fairest here, so true, but Snow White is a thousand times more beautiful than you. And it results an evil queen enlisting a huntsman to kill Snow White and bring her Snow White's lungs and liver. That's true. It's in the story. Um, so that's the, the magic mirror in Snow White. But the, the scripture mirror doesn't just tell you any kind of truth. It tells you gospel truth. It reminds us of the gospel identity, the, the, the good news of Jesus' identity that we're supposed to have. When we look at ourselves in the scripture mirror, the words of the Bible the truth of the Bible, and we read it and reflect on it and are taught it, it shows up something in who we are. In James's epistle, he urges the Jewish Christians to gaze into the mirror of the word and look at themselves, it says. They should look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and respond to the word. Not be hearers who forget, but doers who act, James 1.25. And in my experience, the scripture mirror is a bit like one of those. If you've been backstage in a theatre because you're, you're performing a play, which I know many of you have, um, you, you would have seen those mirrors with the lights around the mirror. And so when you're doing your makeup, you make sure you get it right and stuff. Um, and the scripture mirror is a bit like that because it actually shines brightly. It, 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 it doesn't just give you an accurate picture of who you are and, 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 and who you are supposed to be before God, but it gives you a a really bright picture. It shines and it shows up all the pimples. The more you look, the more you see. And as I've got older, I've found that um, it, the Spirit works through the scriptures, the, script, the truth scripture mirror. In my life, it's showing me things about my whole life, my last 40 years, that I want to wrestle with, that I want to deal with. You know, where, where I, I've seen things that I've not seen before. And it's part of growing as a Christian. The Holy Spirit working through God's word. This is the scripture mirror. So what have we been saying so far? Animal sacrifices can't take away sins, but they were useful for, for annually reminding the people of their own sinfulness. Today, God wants us to have the same self-awareness of our own sinfulness, but you can achieve this, um, this self-awareness through gazing into the scripture truth mirror. It will reveal stuff to you. It will give you an honest depiction of who you are. Now, the passage goes on, and here's my second point and last point, and it's this, that God wants us to live in Jesus' perfect forgiveness. So verses 5 to 10 make the simple point that Jesus abolished animal sacrifices so that he could make way for his own sacrifice. In fact, Hebrews shows that it was never God's intention to do it that way with the animal sacrificial system. And that quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. And, and, and it goes on in, in Hebrews 10, verse 8, to explain that this Psalm 40 reference, says that sacrifices and offerings were, were God's law, and that the people were doing what God had asked, but it really wasn't what God desired. What really, God really desired was obedience. That's what we ultimately wanted. And, and God received wholehearted obedience from his son Jesus, who gave himself. To death on the cross, we are meant then to interpret these words from verse five to seven as being Christ's declaration to to the world as he entered into it. Just remind you of the words: sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Here he's talking to God. The Son is talking to the Father, I guess. The sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said. I being the son of God, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. By fulfilling the will of God, he has made a way for us to be forgiven, for people to be forgiven. And this is the whole reason Jesus has come. I'll say something theological here and I'll explain myself. The atonement, that is Christ's death on the cross, to provide forgiveness of sins and to be a substitute for us, to make us at one with God to bring us back to being at one atonement with God that um, this atonement explains his incarnation, in other words his God becoming flesh I'll just say it again because may as well, Um, atonement at one-ment, Christ dying in our place to pay the penalty for our sin, to bring us back to being at one with God incarnation, think Carnal, meat-eating, God becoming meat, God becoming flesh. That's how you remember, you'll never forget now. The atonement explains the incarnation. The incarnation takes place in order that the sin of the world may be put away by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. Christ's perfect sacrifice provides perfect forgiveness. It goes on in verse verse 11 to 18. And this is the climax of the passage. The overall point is that the old religious order of the sacrificial system didn't. The new religious order of Christ's sacrifice does. This isn't a new idea in Hebrews, but it's good just to build the case, build the case as we read through the book. Let's just remind ourselves what is said in the passage. Verse 11, it just makes the point each day the Jewish priests perform the sacrifices, but they didn't actually take away sins. But this priest, the great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, performs the one sacrifice and then he sits down at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of God and watches the effect of that sacrifice unleash on the world until his enemies are made a footstool to his feet, until um, the devil and evil and all sin is completely wiped away. And let's keep in mind the fact that he has defeated the devil, so the war's won, but the battles are continuing until Jesus returns at the end of time. So what has Jesus done for you? What has he done for you? He's made you perfect. If you're, you have faith in him, if you're living in Jesus' forgiveness, he's made you perfect. Look at verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By perfect, he means that he's given us his spirit and written the law in our hearts, verse, it says in verse 16. And in verse 17, it says, he's wiped out our sinful acts, made them clean. He remembers them no more. And so for this reason, there is no need for sacrifice anymore. There is nothing you can do to add to your forgiveness. So i get back to you. Do you live as a forgiven person? There are two wrong paths you can take in terms of responding to sin. One path is to go walk around. You, you've asked for forgiveness from God, but you still walk around condemned. The other wrong path is to walk around thinking that, that you don't have an issue with sin and that you don't need forgiveness. My challenge for you this morning is to embrace the truth of this passage, which is that you, if, is that you should pursue a life inside Jesus' forgiveness. I've all already talked about the scripture mirror. Let me talk about just the process of repentance, and this is where I want to end, the pas- end this talk. See, we're not, as Christians, living in a linear kind of um, faith where we start in our conversion and just go linearly till we die. What we should be doing is converting and then, and then experiencing God and, and, and realisation of who we are and then processing that So, for example, um, we need to repent and believe over and over again in our lives. And repenting involves observing the sin in our hearts, reflecting on it, even discussing it, writing it down, and then believing involves responding. Just let let me expand on that a bit more. Um, If the scripture mirror has shown you something about yourself, that you wished were, were different, that you know is sin, then you should spend time reflecting on it. And I think it's good to talk to your friends about it who are Christians. Don't hold it to yourself. Don't just try and do all this on your own. Try and work out, why have you acted like this? What, what is, does, what, why, you know, why have you been doing this? Try and understand your sin. Don't just block it out and write it down. Now, if we do that, that will change you, and it will change the community. Larry Crabb, uh, the writer, writes in, the, in his book, The Safest Place on Earth. He says, "...a spiritual community consists of people who have the integrity to come clean. It is, com- compromise, it is comprised of those who own their shortcomings and failures because they hate them more than they hate the shortcomings and failures of others, who therefore discover that a well of pure water flows beneath their most fettered corruption." So discuss, be open, confess. But secondly, you need to do something about it. You need to make plans if you're going to live in Jesus' forgiveness. Perhaps with your Christian friend, you could plan the steps you're going to make to, to how you're going to live differently this week or next month or in, in the next six months or the next three years. Um, and be accountable to them. Then finally, act on your plans. And in my experience, the Christians who live this way, um, they really do grow. They really find themselves being transformed and going down into the basement of their soul. And it is, you know, um, character builds. And this is the Christian journey. Learning to be honest. Learning to thrive as disciples. Uh, let me finish this, this quote from the, the great public intellectual and theologian from Union Seminary in New York City back in the early 20th century, Reinhold Niebuhr. He said it this way in his book, The Irony of American History. This is where I finish Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. No virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that our church can be one that is vulnerable and honest and real with ourselves and living in your forgiveness. Pray for anyone who's here this morning who is feeling burdened by their sin, that um, that you can work in their hearts, show them that they are forgiven, help them to be honest with their Christian friends and to live a new life in your forgiveness. Amen.